This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Now, later on, we're going to hear another tale of Madison High's English teacher, Connie Brooks, so ably played by Eve Arden. But first, we travel back to 1953. What was happening that year, not only in radio, but generally speaking, what were folks concentrating on? Well, 1953 saw the growth of the buy-now-pay-later mentality, with car makers leading the way by allowing longer and longer periods to pay for your new car. And they're still doing that, aren't they? 1953 also saw the unions gaining strength with more and more workers belonging to them. And with wage and price controls ended and and unemployment at 2.9%, the increases in standard of living continue to grow and appears to have no boundaries. Queen Elizabeth II, she was crowned Queen of England, and happily she's still there serving as the longest uh, longest serving monarch in Britain's history. I can remember standing in the kitchen with my mother in our home in London the year before, hearing on the radio the death of her father, King George VI. Watching television, of course, was becoming the norm, but until 1953, we only had black and white TVs to watch. Then the first color television sets appeared. How much did they cost? Well, they weren't cheap, as not everybody could afford to shell out over a thousand bucks. Being fans of radio, it was welcome news that you didn't have to stay home because your radio needed to be plugged in. That's right, transistor radios started to appear for sale. Remember them? The Korean War began on June 25th of 1950, and it still hasn't ended. Fighting on the Korean Peninsula may have stopped with a ceasefire July of 1953, but North and South Korea have remained in a tense state of armed truce ever since, with open warfare just a hair-trigger away. And here we are in 2018, watching all this exacerbated by the constant vocal sniping by either Kim Jong-un or Donald Trump. So let's hope in this new year a solution will be able to be negotiated peacefully. But back to 1953. The first issue of Playboy showed up on the newsstands, and woohoo! Marilyn Monroe was its first cover girl, and, might I add, nude centerfold. Double woohoo. <laughs> the New York Yankees win their fifth World Series in a row, and on March 19, 1953, the Academy Awards were simulcast on radio and television. And one of the most scary shows on radio was Escape. That's where we find our first show this evening, and it's entitled The Abominable Snowman. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. (laughs) 
caught in a blizzard, while the thing for which you've been hunting has suddenly become the hunter. And if it finds you, then for you and your companions, there can be no escape. So listen now as Escape brings you Anthony Ellis' exciting story, The Abominable Snowman. bit of luck was when we hired our shepherd guide, Nasang. That was in Darjeeling. When I told Nasang what we were after, he hesitated for a moment. And then he said, The studs have not come to climb Shomolongma? Oh, no. We're a little late for that. It's already been done. The other two sides and myself are here for the reason I told you. Meto Kangmi? That's right. The studs always hire me to climb the mountain with them. But never this. Are you afraid of them? I have seen one. You've seen one? Yes, many of us have seen them. Uh, wait a minute. Alan. Yeah. What's that? I'm interviewing a Sherpa in here. He says he's seen one of the things. Hey. Where's Frank? Uh, we'll have to get some tobacco. Yeah. All right, come on in. I think this is our man. All right. Nasang. This is Mr. Ferris. Sad? Hello, Nassan. Nassan was telling me about what he'd seen. Go ahead, Nassan. It has a face that is evil. And when it saw me, it uttered a strange cry and bounded away. Sometimes leaping, sometimes running with great strides. It was dusk. And after a moment, I lost sight of it in the snow. Where were you? With the French expedition. It was at 19,000 feet on Shomolungma. How far were you from it? 30 feet, uh, perhaps 35. You're sure it wasn't an ape? I am sure. There is no ape in Himalaya to make such a track. What about bears? This too I have been asked. But does a bear walk always upon its hind legs? Well, that's enough for me. Alan? Yeah, he'll do. Yeah. But if you want the job, Nassang, you're hired. You are going to try to capture a yeti? Yes. It will be a difficult thing. But I will serve with you. Yeti, wild man, metokongmi... Abominable Snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things, and Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. We'd all done some climbing, but climbing was secondary here. Expeditions since the beginning of the 20th century had heard of the Abominable Snowman, observed their tracks, and one or two white men claimed to have seen them. Great ape, bear, monkey, wild men. We didn't know. But we were going to find out. Four weeks later, we were in the Rongbuk Valley for our interview at the monastery with the Lama. 
The journey from our base had been uneventful. The weather was good and our spirits were high. From the Lama's window, we could see the great peak of Everest in the distance. Why, gentlemen, do you desire to capture Miss O'Connor? Because, sir, we believe it will be an invaluable aid in our prehistoric research. That is, if these things are in any way human. And for this reason, then, you have formed the expedition? Yes. You are all familiar with climbing? Yes, we are. You would need to be. The Yeti move at high places. Dangerous places, so my people tell me. Also, the monsoons are arriving in a short time. I understand that. Then do we have your permission to investigate in the valley and beyond? You have my permission. Oh, I appreciate it. There is one point, however. I must request that no wild animal or being in this valley be shot. Our religion does not allow it. We'll respect your wishes, sir. Now, may I ask you one more thing? Of course, my son. Do you believe in the existence of Metokangli? I myself have never seen it, but I know that they live here, above the valley, on the goddess mother of the world. It is also true that at least five, and possibly more, inhabit the upper Rongbuk and its glacier. Thank you. Do you have porters? Our guide, Masang, is hiring them now. Yeah. I trust that he meets with good fortune. The old man, with great dignity, bowed slightly to us and we were dismissed. But I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. And it wasn't long before I found out why. Nasang returned to us in our quarters and his face warned of bad news. Sir, I am unable to hire any porters. Why not? They know the purpose of the expedition. They will not go. Why? They are afraid. The snowmen? Yes. They live in peace with them. They wish no trouble. They are afraid. Well, all right. It'll be rough, but we can't waste time talking them into it. The monsoons will be coming in a couple of weeks. It's not the same as climbing, Everest. We'll travel light just the four of us, set up a base and start hunting. All right with you, fellows? Yeah. Nasang? I will go with you. I am not afraid. Good. Well, let's take a look at the map. Now, we'll each carry a capacity load. We should be able to make this point below the glacier in two days. That's 16,000 feet. Mm. And if our abominable snowmen are in the vicinity, we've got two weeks to find them. When do we start? Tomorrow. Well, that's it. Um, Paul? Yes, Frank? Uh, one thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the thing? Uh, superstition, probably. Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid. It turned ugly the day we left the village. A cold Tibetan wind blew down from the west, and with our heavy packs, it took us much longer than we'd thought to arrive at the point just below the Rongbuk Glacier. We set up our camp and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. 
The next morning wasn't so bad. There was a heavy overcast, a promise of snow, and the peak of Everest looming over us was shrouded in clouds. The four of us sat in the tent looking at our charts and drinking hot tea. I figured it'd be easiest if we started at the East Glacier. It's only about three miles from here, and with the weather as thinking as it is, we won't run too much of a risk. What do you think, Paul? Well, that sounds all right. What do you say we split up? You and Nasung, Alan and me. We'll work up on either side of the ridge, here. And if we spot any tracks, fire two shots. Hmm? Yeah, good enough. Now, the big thing, though, no matter what, don't shoot at the thing if you do see it. Okay? Okay. All right. If we lose touch with each other, we'll meet back here at five. All right, let's get going. We'd left the base at six that morning, and the going was rough. Alan was pretty well shot by the time we got to the 17,000-foot mark. He was having a tough time breathing, and the wind had come up again. And with it, a fine, powdery snow that blinded, choked us. Hey, I, I, I gotta take five. All right. Here, move over here. Might cut some of the wind. Oh, we might as well start back for the base. We couldn't see anything in this anyhow. You know, right now, I don't care whether we do or not. Now, this is good weather. Wait until the monsoon starts. No, no, not me. Oh, cold. I've never been so cold in all my life. in the half-shelter of an overhang for ten minutes. The wind was quieter and the snow had let up. I noticed that the tracks we'd made coming into the shelter were gone now, but we didn't have any worry finding our way back. I figured that Frank and Nassang had met pretty much the same thing on their side of the ridge, and we'd meet them at the base. So Alan and I picked ourselves up and started off. Boy, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape, but up here... Boy, I'm nothing. Oh, Paul, I'm tired again. We'll just take it easy going down. You haven't got frostbite, have you? No. No, not yet, but... What? The left there. Yeah. They're not our tracks, are they? Not unless you took your boots off on the way up. What the... Just passed by. It must have seen us. Yeah. Come on. We were looking at a set of tracks newly made in the fresh snow. And they'd passed so close to our shelter that the thing must have known we were there. They weren't the tracks of a bear or an ape, but more like a splay-footed naked foot. The tracks of the abominable snowman. We will 
return to escape in just a moment. But first, 30 million school children make their way back to class this year. There are just 10 million too many for existing school facilities. Contact Better Schools to West 45th Street, New York 19 for information on ending this menace to America's educational standards. And now, back to Escape. began to follow the track, and for a while, perhaps 150 yards, it was easy. And then the thing made a leftward traverse down a deep slope. We could see the prince clearly, angling with a sidestep, as sure-footed as a mountain goat, except that it was walking on two legs. This way, Paul. Take it easy, Al. Getting safer. Boy, that thing sure can climb. Hold up. And he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body. And I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone. Finished. All I could think of was the noise he'd made when he went over. Surprised, angry, then silent. The crevasse might have been 500 feet or 5,000. Snow started to fall again. Big flakes this time and wet. I stood up. And across the gap 20 feet away, I saw the tracks of the thing continuing on and away until they became lost in the blank whiteness of the glacier. It had jumped and landed still upright on the opposite side. I went back to the base. And an hour later, Frank and Nassang returned. I told them. And we were quiet for a long time. Then... Paul, are we going out again tomorrow? Why not? I just wanted to... We should go back. If there's an omen... I tell you, he was going too fast. He didn't have a chance to see the crevasse. That's not an omen. It's bad sense. Metokong, we cannot be caught. We'll catch him. Oh, but there are only three of us if we had a few more men. I tell you, the thing was so close that we'd, if we'd looked up at the right time, we'd have seen it. You think I'm going to give up now? Next time we'll get it. There was no chance to get Alan out. No. You think if we went back... Listen, you think I don't want to? He's gone. I tried, but he's gone. Okay. Oh, okay. Wish that wind had let up. Maybe by morning... We'll try again tomorrow. It was cold that night, and somehow colder because Alan was gone. I heard Frank tossing around, and I knew he was thinking about a body broken and lonely, lost somewhere in a deep and dark place. In the morning, the three of us packed our gear, camera, food. It was a light pack. We started up again. This time to a crest above the ridge. It was tougher than it looked, and we weren't even halfway up before we had to rest. 
And as I looked to the west, I saw clouds boiling up. Not white, but somber, threatening. And below, the valley looked grim, ugly gray. And then the sun was gone. And we kept on going up. And then I had a strange feeling. It was nothing I could see, nothing I could hear, only a sensation of being watched, followed. Wait a minute. See something? No. I, I have felt it too sad. Something following us? Yes. It is made to come me. How do you know? It can be nothing else at this side. There is nothing else that lives. Maybe it's curious. No, don't turn around, Frank. Listen. When we get up to the crest, you two flop down. Stay in sight of the slope here. What are you going to do? Move around the hump and watch. If it thinks we're all together, it may come close enough to give us a chance to get it. You better watch your step. It looks nasty. I will. Now, come on. It took us another 15 minutes to get up to the crest, and then Frank and Nassang hunched down to rest. They were in clear view of the slope we just descended. I moved back out of sight and made my way toward the hump, which backed a long shelf on the north side of the crest. In a couple of minutes, I lost sight of them and of the slope. The wind had increased and the clouds had spread now to become an iron-gray canopy over the mountain. It was getting colder again. I don't think it took over five minutes to reach my lookout point. And when I did, I had a perfect view of the ground we'd covered. There was nothing there. The men were out of sight. And I waited. A minute. Two. There was nothing. Until... It came, carried on the wind, a cry, and then shots. I scrambled back to where I'd left them. And when I got there... When I got there... Frank was lying on his back. And I couldn't look at what was left of his face. There were terrible deep rents in his clothing, and... He was dead. The song lay huddled a few feet beyond, a gun in his hand. Son? <laughs> what is it? What? Metokami. Came from behind us. Before I could throw the gun. And killed. Then it sprang at me. It is strong, son, with the strength of ten men. All right. All right, can you sit up? My leg. It struck at me, my leg. Broken. I shot at it, but I missed. It jumped away and was gone. Okay. We'll have to figure out a way to get you down. We were four hours from camp, and with Nassang practically helpless, it could well be four days or never. I buried Frank where he was lying, then began to work down the slope. Nassang was in great pain. He half slid and crawled as best he could. That part of it wasn't too bad. Then we were at the bottom, and there was a ledge to climb. It took well over two hours to do that, and we still had three miles of difficult terrain to cover. The stops became more frequent. Sir, please, please, go back. 
No. My leg is frozen. There is no feeling anymore. I shall not live much longer. Don't be a fool. After a rest, you'll be able to go on. Soon the night comes. If we are both caught here, we both die. There will be snow, much snow. Leave me. No, we're going back together. Please, let me sleep. Let me sleep here. I cannot go on. You've got to, Nassar. No, no more. The ridge is only about a half mile. From there, it won't be too bad. No, no, let me stay. Nassar. Let me sleep. No, no, come on, Nassar. Come on, you're not going to sleep. Nassar. You'll be all right. Behind you, Nassar. I turned, and for an instant I saw it outlined against the snow, crouching of medium height. It was covered with thick hair. The face was reddish and bare. A semi-human face. And it was not an ape. The thing made a tremendous leap and was gone, but I hit it. I knew I hit it. Mr. Conley, that was he. Did you kill it? No, I don't think so. Then it will be back. It has tasted blood. You must leave me. No, get up. Get up. Come on. Let's go. Nassan. I'm very sorry, sir. Will you ask the lama to make a prayer for me? Sure. Sure I will, Nassan. Give my pay to my wife in Darjeeling. I'm sorry, sir. I die. Nassan. Nassan. darkness came, and with its shadows in the snow, every hillock, mound, became the thing, motionless, waiting. In my mind, I kept seeing it, its long arms, powerful, and the dreadful claws it must have possessed. I carried my gun in my gloved hand, but I knew that I couldn't fire it unless I was barehanded, and that meant my hand would freeze to the gun. And then suddenly, I felt myself slipping. It was a short incline, but when I reached the bottom, the gun was gone. I'd lost it. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. And I saw a glint of metal in the snow ten feet away. And at the same time, above me at the top of the bank, the thing, it stood swaying a little, looking down at me. I moved slowly. Slowly. Inch my way toward the gun. And as I drew closer, I kept my eyes looking up. But it didn't move, only stared down at me. And I thought I saw its little eyes glittering. And I thought, if the gun's frozen now, if it's frozen, it doesn't fire. And I was nearer to it, near enough to take off my glove. But that moment in which I'd have to bend to pick it up, that's when it would leap down at me, tear my throat out, tear and... I had the gun and I pulled the trigger. (laughs) 
lay there. Strange and terrifying. It's blood staining the snow. And it looked at me. Looked at me. Until the sound died away. It was dead. But the eyes kept on staring. It must have been the shots that loosened the snow and ice on the ridge above. I heard the sound, and I ran. Ran! It passed me and swept on down toward the valley, the thunder of it dying in the distance. And when I went back, there was nothing there. It was buried somewhere under tons of snow. I made my way back to the wrong book village. I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know. About the abominable snowmen. Escape. Has brought you The Abominable Snowman, written and directed by Anthony Ellis, starring William Conrad as Lane. Featured in the cast were Anthony Barrett, High Everback, Jack Crucian, and Edgar Barrier. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Lee Stevens. Next week. Passenger aboard a submarine making its last peaceful voyage across the sea. While unknown to you, the captain has a plan which, if it succeeds, will mean for you and the entire crew a fate from which there can be no escape. So listen next week when Escape will bring you Marion Mosner. And Francis Rosenwald's exciting story, The Log. You're headed in the right direction. The station is right. The network is right, too. Check all timepieces, and then check your local radio schedule. Let's have no slip-ups. Everybody wants to hear the Jack Benny Show right from the beginning, when it returns to CBS Radio tonight. This is Roy Rowan speaking. CBS Radio Network.
Stay tuned for Our Miss Brooks next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Our Miss Brooks and the episode Mr. Conklin Starts a Fight, first aired in 1949. Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. Time once again for Eve Arden in another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, for most of us, it's considerably harder to get up early on winter mornings than it is during the summer. But this isn't the case with Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School. Maybe I'm just being perverse, but if I found it any harder to get up early in the winter than I do in the summer, I'd sleep right through the spring. <laughs> That's why Mrs. Davis, my landlady, had such a time waking me last Thursday morning. Honey. Get up, Connie. Go away, Mrs. Davis. Come on now. You told me yourself that you wanted to get up at 6.30 sharp. I was lying. (laughs) I can't understand what makes you so difficult to wake up. It must be because of my dream. Your dream? Yes, I dreamt I was out very late last night. Oh. You did go out with Mr. Boynton last night, didn't you? I had dinner with the bashful one, yes. Was it an exciting evening, Connie? It was a rip snorter. (laughs) When we got to the front door, Mr. Boynton apologized for keeping me out until the wee small hours. What time was it, Connie? Five minutes of ten. (laughs) Of course, by the time he got finished saying goodnight, the way he says it, it was considerably later. What time was it then? Four minutes of ten. (laughs) Well, I'd better take my shower and get dressed, Mrs. Davis. All right, Connie. Mr. Boynton isn't the most romantic fellow in the world, is he? So far, Cary Grant has nothing to worry about. (laughs) Well, this coffee was very good, Mrs. Davis. Oh, I'm glad you like it, Connie. Do you know what I put into the coffee grounds to get that flavor? Don't tell me. I want another cup first. (laughs) There we are. You want some? No, thanks. I've been thinking about Mr. Bonington all morning. Why, Mrs. Davis, don't tell me I've got competition. Competition? Oh, of course not, Connie. Why, I'm old enough to be both your mothers. Oh, now, please, Mrs. Davis, you mustn't split up over us. (laughs) Oh, that must be Walter Denton. I can tell because there's still some food on the breakfast table. I'll get it. All right, Connie. I'm going out in the yard for a few minutes. I've got to try to fix that incinerator. The incinerator? What's the matter with it? It caught on fire the other day. (laughs) I'll tell you about it when I come back. Should be interesting. You're right there. Good morning, Walter. Correction, Miss Brooks. It's a wonderful morning. A delicious morning. A morning dripping with ecstasy. Well, trickle in, happy boy. What are you celebrating, Walter? Was Madison High swept out to sea by a tidal wave? Uh, Of course not, Miss Brooks. It's me that's being carried along by a tidal wave. A tidal wave of emotion unprecedented in one of my tender years. It's as if I'd discovered a hidden wellspring in the core of my being. You'll find a blotter in the hall closet. (laughs) Now, come on into the dinette. I was just finishing a cup of coffee. Oh, I'd be happy to join you in a bit of breakfast, Miss Brooks. Sit down, Walter. How about a glass of milk? Uh, a glass of milk and a few pieces of coffee cake will be fine, thanks. 
I'm glad you brought your beaming face over so early today. Maybe you can loan me a pint or two of ecstasy. What's it all about? Well, it's Harriet, Miss Brooks. I'm really in solid with her, and all because of a fortunate accident that happened yesterday afternoon. What kind of an accident? Well, yesterday after school, she was in the garage looking for a tennis racket, and her father's car was in the way. Now, you know how finicky old Marblehead is about the... <laughs> Mr. Conklin is about his car. <laughs> I know he doesn't let anyone drive it. Drive it? He doesn't let anybody come within six feet of it if he can help it. He even parks it himself in parking lots. Why, I've heard him boast that since the day he bought it, his car has been untouched by human hands. <laughs> How does he get it lubricated? And if you say by grease monkeys, I'll take away that case. <laughs> oh, no, he does it himself, Miss Brooks. So you can imagine how nervous Harriet got when she tried to back it up a few feet in the garage and the wheels were turned too sharply and, bang, she put a neat dent in the fender. That's when I got the inspiration that will forever endear me to Harriet Conklin. What did you do, smuggle her out of the country? <laughs> no, Miss Brooks. I decided to take the rat for what she'd done. Instead of obeying my normal, natural impulse to run like a crook, uh, I decided to face Mr. Conklin and take the blame. Walter, Mr. Conklin isn't too fond of you as it is. I'll say he isn't. He can't stand the sight of me. <laughs> but as I say, Miss Brooks, I was inspired. So I went around to the front of the house. I strode boldly up the porch steps and faced Mr. Conklin's face, face to face. In the picture, let's face it. <laughs> Sir, I said, you're not going to like this, but the fender of your car has just been dented. And it was I, Walter Denton, who did the Denton. You've been reading too much Ogden Nash What did Mr. Conklin say to that, Walter? He said, Denton, I admire your honesty That's all he said? Not another word, not another syllable He just extended his hand and shoved me down the steps I knew there was some sort of punctuation <laughs> But as I landed in the yard below... I felt a warm glow spreading around my heart. I question the geographical accuracy of that remark. <laughs> no, it's the truth, Miss Brooks. I saw a look in Harriet's eyes she helped me up that seemed to say, Walter Denton, I am forever your slave. And you know something, Miss Brooks? That system would work for you, too. But, Walter, I can't be your slave. The Board of Education has a priority. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Mr. Boynton. Now, if you want to get in solid with him, all you've got to do is just what I did. What? Let Mr. Conklin shove me down the steps? <laughs> no, Miss Brooks. Take the rap for some jam that Mr. Boynton gets into. But Mr. Boynton doesn't get into any jams. How could I possibly take any raps for him? Maybe a jam could be arranged for Mr. Boynton. Mrs. Davis. <laughs> I couldn't help but hear your conversation, Connie. You couldn't? No, I had my ear to the keyhole. <laughs> Walter, I want you to know that I think you've got a wonderful idea. There. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Davis. Now, it shouldn't be too tough to figure out a way to get Mr. Boynton into some kind of trouble in school. Then you could take the blame for him, and he'd be so grateful. He wouldn't know what to do for you first. But I bet you could tell him. <laughs> but that would be framing a perfectly innocent man. But it's for his own good, Connie. He's just too shy to realize that you two were meant for each other. Now, it's quite early yet, so before you start out for school, let's all sit quietly and try to figure out the best possible scheme. Swell. We'll all concentrate. 
I've got it. What is it? I'll borrow Mr. Boynton's cigarette lighter and leave it in the principal's office as evidence. A cigarette lighter? What good would that do? Oh, I forgot to tell you. First, I'd set fire to Mr. Conklin. <laughs> And plenty of time for me to try out the Walter Denton plan for obtaining the gratitude of the object of one's affection. Or as Walter so romantically put it, get him in the jam, take the wrap, and you got him in your pocket. <laughs> anyway, I headed directly for Mr. Boynton's biology lab. And knowing that Mr. Conklin's disposition wouldn't be improved any by the dent in his fender, I glided very carefully past his office. But I guess I wasn't careful enough. Miss Brooke. Whoops. <laughs> Morning, Mr. Conklin. On our toes this morning, aren't we? Yes, we are. Especially you. It's just that I didn't want to disturb you, sir. Very considerate of you. Now, if you don't mind, Miss Brooks, you can put your shoes on and step into my office. <laughs> there we are. Have a seat. Thank you, sir. As you know, Miss Brooks, I have high blood pressure. Yes, sir, I know. Sometimes when you get excited, your face gets so red, it looks like uh, a little... Never old. mind. <laughs> never mind the little word pictures, Miss Brooks. I know how I look when I get excited. What I wanted to tell you is that I saw you stepping out of Walter Denton's car this morning. Oh? I see you stepping out of Denton's car almost every morning when you come to school, and it rather fascinates me. What does? Well, you see, sometimes I park my car right in front of school. Sometimes a few yards to the right of it, and sometimes halfway down the block. But do you know something, Miss Brooks? No matter where I park it, Denton always manages to pull up alongside of it so that when you get out of his car, you have to slide your body the entire length of my car, making nick after nick in the paint job! <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Conklin. I had no idea I was so abrasive. <laughs> Well, it's not deliberate, I'm sure. But every third Sunday when I simonize my car, I, uh, <laughs> I find a little nick here, a little nick there, here a scratch, there a scrape. Everywhere a scratch scrape. <laughs> I mean, I can understand your being annoyed, Mr. Conklin, but... I'm glad. You see, Miss Brooks, to me, a man's car is a most personal possession. As personal, you might say, as his toothbrush. Well, in the future, Mr. Conklin, you can rest assured that I'll make every effort not to bump into your toothbrush. That's hard. <laughs> Thanks, Miss Brooks. Oh, before you go, there's one more thing. Yes? Make a little effort to avoid bumping into Mr. Boynton so often, too. You know how I stand on fraternization between faculty members? Mr. Boynton and me? Why, just put it out of your mind, Mr. Conklin. That's a thing of the past. Oh, really? Of course. Why, if I were the only woman in the world and Mr. Boynton was the last man on earth... Yes, Miss Brooke? I'd like to leave a call for Tuesday. <laughs> so you see, Mr. Boynton, although I don't like to lecture, these little visits have just got to stop. That's all there is to it. But why, Miss Brooks? I, I like your dropping into my lab like this. Well, that's the end of that lecture. Any questions? <laughs> oh, honestly, I don't see why Mr. Conklin's so strict about teachers passing the time of day once in a while. What harm does it do? Well, it does slow up our work some, I suppose. Although I haven't anything urgent to do at the moment. In fact, I was just doodling on this scratch pad. You see, it's a sketch of one of my white mice. Hey, that's very cute. 
How is everything with you, Mr. Barton? Fine, Miss Brooks. No trouble on the horizon at all? That is, everything sailing along smoothly for you? Smooth as silk. Oh. Let me have that mouse you just drew hmm? and that pencil. Thanks. Now, when I put this little mustache on him, who does it remind you of? Gee, I don't know. Here, I'll give you a hint. There. Well, when you put his name on it, it does look quite a bit like Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Say, that reminds me. I've got some reports to turn into him this morning. Oh, I'll do it for you. I'm going right by his office. Are you sure it's no trouble? Trouble? It's my opportunity. I mean... I'll be glad to leave these reports for you. <laughs> See you later, Mr. Boynton. All right, Miss Brooks, and thanks. Now I'd better tear up that drawing with Osgood Conklin's name on it, or he might... Well, that's funny. It disappeared. Oh, Miss Brooks, just a minute. What is it? Uh, did you happen to pick up that drawing I... Miss Brooks, what's that you're stuffing in the envelope with my reports? Please, Mr. Boynton, I never stop. Let's see that a minute. <laughs> but, Mr. Boynton, if you don't get reports in promptly to Mr. Conklin, he gets furious. Miss Brooks, look at this picture. Eek, a mouse. <laughs> yes, and with a mustache. Now, I-, I wish you'd tell me what he's doing in there with my reports. Maybe there's some cheese in the envelope. <laughs> well, this is no laughing matter, Miss Brooks. I could have gotten into a fine jam with Mr. Conklin. Yes, it could have been a beauty. Uh, but there's no harm done, Mr. Boynton. I would have discovered it before I got to Mr. Conklin's office, and I... Well, you don't think I intentionally... Mr. Boynton, how dare you accuse me of what I just did? Why are you sitting way over here, Miss Brooks? I just saw Mr. Boynton at the other end of the cafeteria Well, if you must know, Harriet, I'm staying away from Mr. Boynton because of your father Oh, Daddy won't be up to the cafeteria today He's been terribly upset since I dented a fender yesterday Walter Denton took the blame for it, though. He's just an angel, Miss Brooks. Yes, I heard he flew down the steps beautifully. (laughs) But ever since it happened, Daddy's been on a rampage. He's positive he's got an ulcer. Really? Can he afford one? I mean, I'm sorry to hear it. Daddy called the cafeteria a little while ago and had them prepare a special lunch for him to eat in his office. Plain broth and a whole boiled chicken. Walter's bringing the tray over from the steam table now. I promised Daddy I'd bring it right down to his office. Well, here we are, Harriet. This ought to stop the old lion from growling for his vittles. Oh, hiya, Miss Brooks. Hello, Walter. Thanks, Walter. I'll rush it right down to him. Oh, just a minute, Harriet. I was just thinking. I've got to go back to my room for a minute. Why don't you stay here and eat your own lunch and let me take the tray for you? Well, well, that's very nice of you, Miss Brooks. Oh, it's nothing at all, Harriet. Here, give me the tray, Walter. Are you sure you'll drop it right in Daddy's office? Nothing would give me greater pleasure. <laughs> Walter, will you walk out of the cafeteria with me for a moment? Oh, sure, Miss Brooks. Excuse me, Harriet. Certainly, Walter, dear. See how nice she is to me. How are you doing, Miss Brooks? Think of any way to get Mr. Boynton into a jam? I think I've got an idea, Walter, but you've got to help me. Yeah? While he's out, I want you to take this tray into Mr. Boynton's laboratory. Just put a little note on it saying compliments of the cafeteria. And whatever you do, don't mention this to Harriet. Yeah, but, Miss Brooks, this lunch belongs to Miss... Quiet, Walter. His office is just a few doors down the hall. You started me on this thing. Now the least you can do is cooperate. Huh? Okay, Miss Brooks. I'll put it in the lab right away. But I sure hope you know what you're doing. I sure hope you get your hope. Well, what is it? May I see you for a moment, Mr. Conklin? Oh, come in, come in. Uh, there's something I'd like to tell you, sir. Very well, but be brief. Oh, I will. I know this is your feeding time, or lunchtime. <laughs> it is 
lunchtime. Ray, I ordered you'd have been here a half an hour ago. Well, that's what I came in to talk to you about. It might be some sort of a prank, and although I'm not the one to go in for informing, Mr. Prank? Who took my lunch? I don't know, I'm sure. But I thought if you wanted me to, I could inspect some of the laboratories, uh, classrooms, and see who the the guilty party might be. A splendid suggestion, Miss Brooks. Only instead of you inspecting the classrooms, I'll do it myself. Yourself? Oh, but you're not a well man, Mr. Conklin. You you can't leave this office now. Uh, Step aside, Miss Brooks. I'm going to locate my lunch or else. I'm glad you got to class before any of the others, Walter. I'm in the spot. Yeah, but Miss Brooks... When I had you put that lunch tray in Mr. Boynton's lab, I wanted him to see it before I transferred it to my room and told Mr. Conklin that somebody had played a prank on me. Yeah, I know, Miss Brooks, But Mr. Conklin insisted on making the rounds himself, and now... Walter, isn't that the lunch tray on my desk? Yeah, that's what I've been trying to explain, Miss Brooks. Mr. Boynton already had lunch, so when he found it in the lab, he brought it down here to your room. He said he wanted to treat you. Oh, fine. <laughs> well, there's no time for any more schemes now. I'd better sneak his lunch into Mr. Conklin's office while he's out looking. Oh, there's something else I've got to explain, Miss Brooks. Although Mr. Boynton had his lunch and I knew you'd had yours, I didn't have mine. So rather than take a chance of getting caught in the hall with it, I ate it. <laughs> Let's see it. Oh, there's nothing left but a skeleton. I've got to get rid of this tray immediately. Quick, Walter, open the window. I'll take these dishes and lower them out. Just a moment, Miss Brooks. (laughs) What's that you're holding in your hand? For all practical purposes, my death warrant. (laughs) You see, Mr. Conklin... Silence! I... (laughs) Put it down on your desk, please. Thank you. So you wanted to hunt through the classrooms yourself, eh? A very clever red herring, Miss Brooks, but it just didn't work. I'll deal with you later, of course. But for now, I'll just take my lunch. And My lunch? What happened to it? This chicken is nothing but skin and bones. He's been working very hard lately. (laughs) Please, Mr. Conklin, I'll explain it all later. I'll think of something. Uh, Just go to your office and relax. Why, I'll bring you a tray that'll make you feel like a million dollars. There's only one thing I want you to bring me on a tray, Miss Brooks. And that's your head! (laughs) Oh, I'm certainly glad school's over, Mr. Boynton. I thought this day would never end. Oh, me too. Mr. Conklin was in a pretty bad mood, wasn't he? I can't understand it. He's got such a fine teaching staff, you'd think he'd be happy. Well, here's my car, Miss Brooks. Uh... If you haven't made any other plans, or, well, that is, I, I thought maybe if, uh, if you didn't have a ride with some other, well, uh, what would, would you like me to? Uh... I'm already in, Mister Boynton. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, fine, I, I'll get in. Now we'll just, uh-oh, I seem to be jammed in between two cars here. Oh, it is pretty tight. Bumper to bumper. Now, I just have to stop my motor and push the car in front of me a bit. (laughs) Why do people persist in leaving their cars in gear? You've got enough room now, Mr. Boynton. You can stop pushing the car in front of you. I have stopped. That car's rolling by itself. Miss Brooks, what'll I do? Well, there's nothing you can do. Maybe it'll stop by itself. (laughs) 
the first time I've been right today. <laughs> Come on. Look at that fender, crumpled like an accordion. Now, let's see who the car belongs to. Miss Brooks, can you see the certificate on the steering wheel? Quite clearly, Mr. Boynton. It says, and I quote, Osgood Conklin. <laughs> Osgood Conklin? Well, I, I guess I'll have to face the music. You, you wait right here, Miss Brooks. I'm going in and report this to Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Well, that's a fine insurance company you're with, Gibbons. I'm sorry, Mr. Conklin, but our inspector looked at the fender this morning, and he says the dent can be hammered out for about $40. But I don't want it hammered out. I want a new fender. What am I paying insurance premiums for? Sorry, Mr. Conklin, a new fender would cost over $150, and the dent you have doesn't justify it. Since your policy is a $50 deductible, you'll have to stand the expense yourself. Bye. Uh, but, Mr. Gibbons, Goodbye. I... Mr. Gibbons, I... Mr. Gibbons, Mr... He hung up on me. Well, of all the colossal nerves. Oh, pardon me, sir. What do you want, Poynton? I, uh, I wish to report an accident, sir, an automobile accident. Automobile accident? Anybody hurt? Not yet. <laughs> you see, sir, uh, uh, it was your car. My car? Yes, sir. You had me locked in at the curb, and I had to give it a little push, and the brake wasn't on, and, well, it, it didn't stop till it hit a tree. A tree? What happened to it? Oh, nothing happened to the tree, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> but your, your fender, it's, uh, it's just... Smashed up pretty good, Boynton? Mangled. Really wrecked, eh? <laughs> oh, Boynton, that's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful? You mean, you mean you're happy about it? Well, of course. I'll show that insurance company they... Oh, wait a minute. That fender couldn't be hammered out, could it? Oh, definitely not. And a boy, boy! <laughs> oh, I won't forget this, my boy. You've done me a real turn. Don't you see? I had a little dent in the fender, but the insurance company wouldn't replace it. But now they'll have to. Do you hear me? They'll have to. <laughs> Wait. Mr. Conklin, you're barking at the wrong tree. I mean, I alone am responsible for what just happened to your car. You? But Mr. Boynton said... Never mind what Mr. Boynton said. Uh, now, see here, Miss Brooks. There's no necessity for you to go... Excuse me, Mr. Boynton. I'll handle this. No, Mr. Conklin. I know you're angry at me as it is, but I cannot let an innocent person try to shield me. You can go now, Mr. Boynton. Leave here a free man. But, Miss Brooks... You, you can thank me some other time. Tonight, say. <laughs> but I, I, I don't understand. Why are you trying to take credit for this, Boynton? Credit? Credit? Look, Mr. Conklin, I don't understand a lot of things that have happened here today, so if you'll excuse me, I'll take Miss Brooks' suggestion and then leave here a free man. But, Mr. Boynton, I don't... Now, what's the matter with him? What difference does it make who did what as long as I'm pleased? Miss Brooks, you have no idea what you've just done for me. You're so right. And you, Mr. Conklin, have no idea what I have just done to me. But I told you I'm not angry. Why are you still up a tree? If an English teacher may correct a principle, Mr. Conklin, it isn't a tree that I'm up. What I'm up, and without a paddle, is a creek. <laughs> and 
now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, I corralled Mr. Boynton before he got into his car again and explained that I thought he was in trouble and was merely coming to his rescue. Well, I'm afraid I don't approve such heroics, Miss Brooks. You see, I've always liked to stand on my own two feet. It's a trait I inherited from my father. Really? Yes, Miss Brooks. I've gotten where I am today without the help of any woman. I'm rather proud of that, and so is my father. Mr. Boynton, could I have his address? His address? What for, Miss Brooks? I want to send your father a card on Mother's Day. <laughs> Next week, tune into another Our Miss Brooks show, brought to you by Mustard Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North Tuesday evening over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Suspense, followed by Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.